Uh, this is Dave Broadbeck sitting here in my, what I euphemistically call a podcasting studio, but it's actually the uh, room I do podcasts in. It's not really a studio. It's my daughter's old bedroom. That is neither here nor there. Uh, the following lecture is from Psychology 3926-4926. Uh, special topics in cognitive psychology, animal cognition. recognition learning um i guess this is one of those topics where you don't think of it if, whoa what just happened there what are you doing what is this what happened oh i see i see that's coming back come on come on come on screen there you go um We don't tend to think of this as being something separate. Like if you were taking a learning class, like animal learning, right? Some of you guys did take that last year. You probably didn't think of this as something separate. You probably maybe didn't even think of stuff like this. So we're talking about differential responding to something previously experienced. So you recognize it. It's basically, this is an operational definition of recognition. Right? The only way we can, rec we can measure recognition is if you differently respond to something you've experienced before. So maybe it could be something like responding a certain way, some special way, the first time a certain stimulus shows up. And we'll, we'll talk today about imprinting, and that's a great example here. So the first time you know, imprinting works, first time a chick sees something moving, it, it responds to that, and it becomes, it starts treating Conrad Lorenz's booths as its lover. Right? Okay. Now, we'll start, though, with the most boring form of learning. <laughs> However, it is the ubiquitous thing of learning. We talked about this the other day. <clears throat> Habituation, while it is, it's uninteresting, it also shows up in everything. So in every animal ever tested, habituation shows up. Habituation is a decrease in responding to repeated stimulations, or sorry, repeated discrete stimuli. It's discreetly presented stimuli. Let me do that again. Habituation is a decrease in responding to <laughs> um, discreetly presented stimuli. So it's got to be on, off, on, off. That's why I see discrete. So you don't, you don't actually habituate to the sound of the projector. That's sensory adaptation. Because it's constant. So habituation is when you... Could be something like a... Uh, I don't know. Gill withdrawal, withdrawal from the plesia, uh, sorry, from C. elegans, that's, uh, that's plesia, yeah. Uh, it could be curling up in a defensive posture by a nematode. It could be a startle reaction from a rat. It can be an orienting response from a cat or a person. Okay? But you get less of that as time goes on. 
there isn't too much generalization here. One of the things that you often see in learning is you get generalization. So if I present you with, and you, 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 you in this case, you're a pigeon. So if I present you with, uh, I don't know, a 440 hertz tone, and then I test, and then you learn to peck at 440 hertz. You peck a little, you peck at 400, and, so you, you hear a tone, and then you, the light's on, and then you peck, right? So you hear 440, and you peck. And then at 430, you peck, but a little less. 450, you peck a little less, and you get a nice symmetrical curve. Sort of a normal, in fact, it, it looks exactly like a normal distribution. You get some of that with habituation, not very much. It's much more stimulus-specific than other forms of learning. Okay? Much more specific than other forms of learning. Um, now, responding can also be a lack of response. <sighs> no. Here, the lack of response, the, lack, the only kind of lack of response is like lack of bar pressing. And we could use that as a tool, what like the Rescoil 73 experiment used habituation basically as a tool here, right? Whereas in this case, what we're talking about is there is a response of some sort, and it goes away. So the first time I do that, you might flinch. But if I kept doing it, you'll just stop flinching, right? So it's always a decrease in responding. You know, I can't think of something where there'd be more responding. I, I, we could probably sit down and dream something up, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head where it would be that way. Yeah. Okay. No, oh, it's a good question. It's a perfectly good question. And this isn't meant in, a, in any way at all. I was very happy to see your name on the class list because you always ask good questions. I'm just saying. And you're not, and you see, she asks them. Not afraid to ask them. More people ask questions. <laughs> Yeah, I'm saying unless this is all completely clear, which it can't be. I'm not that good. Um, I mean, I'm pretty good. But so there isn't as much generalization that like saw opera conditioning or classical conditioning. There's a little, but it's not quite as much. The more presentations of the stimulus, the better. Well, that makes sense. There's more. Look. The more you do something, whatever that thing is when you're learning, the better you get at it. Be it practicing a list of words, be it me poking you with a pin until you stop noticing it because it's not hurting you. Poking with a pin's a bad one because <laughs> you notice that as the pain. Eventually, you'd go. Eh, it depends. No, the pain would probably hurt though. But if I was just like make it just a clapping noise, let's go with that instead of me doing something weird with a pin. Yeah, let's go with that. A good example is the stop sign below the sound for uh, construction. People get yeah. situated to them. Yeah, you really do, actually. That's true. The, the sound of the beep, 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 that thing. Because it's, and of course, what's, what's the notion here is that it's, you, you, your nervous system runs very quickly. It's biologically irrelevant. It's not hurting you, it's not helping you, ignore it. Right? It makes sense that every animal ever tested shows this. It's the universal learning paradigm. In fact, because we know the, the nematode's whole nervous system, 302 neurons, and we know the whole freaking genome, um, you can do things with nematodes and find it, oh, that was because this gene expressed this way in like neuron 58 or something like that. And then you can actually use the nematode as, as like a universal learning. So you can say, what, can we make smart drugs? Well, you'd start by having. Get, 
or if we genetically engineer smart nematodes. We probably can't. We'd start with nematodes. Also, you don't have to have a animal rights, like animal animal uh, thing protocol. They have 302 neurons. You flush them in the toilet when you're done with them. How do you measure the intelligence of a nematode? How quickly it habituates to something. Yeah. One way. Or, of course, the uh, the whisk. Doesn't score so well on that. Thank you. Um, There's learning versus, I talked to the other learning versus performance. There's the idea here of habituation below zero, which is a cool phenomenon. It also sounds like the name of the 1980s band. So, one of, you get very similar things in, 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 in uh, habituation than you do. You know what I can do, actually? Let's do this. I forgot that. I can just blank that. And now I can just use this. Just, just come on. For those of you listening on the internet, I'm trying to make a screen go up. It's very slow. <laughs> it's like that in all classrooms. <laughs> That's the worst, stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. Well, that can't be even close to true. <laughs> you know, 9-11 was bad. Um, wow, sorry, a little dark there. Wow. Okay, so, um, but it was pretty bad. <laughs> Way worse than that. So, we've got... So these are just presentations. Each, each, each of these is a presentation of the stimulus, okay? And then we've got response. And it, it, this could be a nematode, or this could be a start of response. I don't care what it is. I don't, it doesn't matter what the animal is. I, I, not, I don't care. The point is, just like any other kind of learning, you get a lot of response, and then you get less response. Uh, sorry, and like, it goes down, okay? Most learning on the first trial. It's like any other kind of learning. That's one of the reasons, as well, that it fits in with everything else. So eventually, now yeah, we got nothing. It goes to zero. It, the animal can't respond less than zero. Yeah? It's impossible. Mm -hmm. However, it could still learn. So if we keep doing presentations of the end, let's say this is a uh, startle, you know, orienting response in a cat lets you do that because they look when they hear a noise. You play the noise enough, enough times, they stop looking. Right? You do this, if you've got a cat, you've got to hold it still. It's not going to work. It's your pet, likely. Because it's just going to walk away. <laughs> right? So you have to strap it down. It's not going to work. But anyway, after a while, theoretically what should be happening is this. It should be going below zero. Because the animal's still learning, but it can't show you behaviorally that it's learned anything. Because you can't respond less than not responding at all. Does that make sense to everybody? How would we measure this? Well, we get two groups. One group that we stop, essentially stops responding, and another group that we do habituation below zero. And then we wait till the next day. And we start again. Now, if you wait for the next day, you get what's called spontaneous recovery. You get that in every other kind of learning. Basically, it's a form of forgetting. It's a form of forgetting. The animal has forgotten that this is biologically irrelevant, and it responds a bit, but not as much as it used to. So we now have, do I have a different colored marker? I do not. Who cares? Go to my office and get one, but it's silly. Um, so we have two groups, one that stopped here, one that went, did the habituation, Below zero, 
I just spelled below E B L below. <laughs> my my handwriting is so bad it wouldn't matter really would. So one group has that one group doesn't. We now test them again. So we're gonna break the day here. This is the test. This is training. I'll take a picture of this part of the blog. And we see how they are the first day, so or the next day rather. You won't get complete responding. This will be the uh, control group. And this will be the habituation below zero group. HBO. <laughs> and the sopranos come on. Everything's great. So this group here, and this actually happens. So we know, in fact, that habituation below zero happens because we get less responding, in other words, less forgetting, because they remember better because they had more pairings. Does that make sense to everybody? Uh -huh. It's cool, right? It's very clever. I think it's clever. And in here, I am the arbiter of what is clever. All right, good, I got that. So now I'll try to pull this back and see. Oh, that was easy. Goes down easy enough. <laughs> I there are things that I edit out, man. And I'm glad I didn't say. After class, if you're willing to be, I'll tell you what that was. <laughs> uh, this is an experiment Gillette and Bellingham did to show that rats learn about a stimulus, not to the compounds of the stimulus when they're habituated. This is interesting because we talked the other day about compound stimuli, are they learning about the individual pieces of the compound, like tone, like that, or they learn like tone? So they had rats um, drink a salt and sucrose compound. That's something they've never tasted before. Okay, so it's just sweet and salty. Like uh, chocolate covered pretzels. I don't know why I went with that. Sure. Bacon ice cream. You know, some good stuff like that. Bacon ice cream is delicious. <laughs> no, it really is. I made ice cream and bacon ice cream is my favorite. It's not like it's got to be crispy. You don't like it's not fat, flabby bacon. <laughs> or you would use back bacon, pork chops. I mean, it's bacon, crispy <laughs> bacon. Yeah, pork chop ice cream would be nasty. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> the ice cream. Uh, it's a standard sort of uh, vanilla custard base. It's delicious. You can use frozen yogurt too. Yeah, if you want to be healthy or some shit like that. <laughs> Look, you're eating bacon ice cream. This <laughs> stop screwing around, right? Um, so the cool thing is here. They, in, in this case, they were habituated not to. They were then given the drink, a uh, choice to drink either sucrose, water, uh, salt water, or regular water. And they drank less of the sucrose and the salt water compared to the compound sucrose salt water or the controlled regular water. So they actually had learned about sucrose and salt, not sucrose salt. Which seems weird to me, but you're, what they're learning is something very specific. It makes some sense if you think of this biologically. You're learning that something is biologically significant or it is not. Okay? 
So we can talk, the effects on behavior can be very broad here. Everything from gill withdrawal in a, in a, in a sea slug, which has 2,000 neurons, to a decline in exploration by a rat, less behavior. So is it consistently always that habituation goes down across the board for every animal? Because humans don't do that. Like when that sure skyjack thing is going, and yeah. I'm annoyed by it, yeah. every time it goes, yeah. it, it like my... Yeah, we aren't, we aren't very carefully measuring your response. I bet if we were, you'd respond less to it. I, I don't know. I can feel my heart rate going up. Yeah? Yeah. I doubt it. <laughs> but it may be the case, though, that because you're paying attention here, right, that it, that's actually throwing you out of the uh, of paying attention. And in that case, it is, eh, let's... This is going to stretch this a little bit. Biologically relevant. Mm -hmm. Unlike something like if you were just standing there and it kept happening and you had nothing else to do. In here, you're trying to pay attention, mm -hmm. right? And that's stopping you from paying attention. Mm -hmm. See, I, I, can, I can tell a story. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I'm sure you pay attention. <laughs> we're certainly seeing that. That's a pretty good, pretty good question. But generally, we can do this with humans. We can do startle reflex. Start response or orienting response. You can use either of those, and you have less of it. Um, it's kind of like it's hard to think of a discrete stimulus in real life. That's the, the problem here. That's why that is a great example. Except that it doesn't. You may be right. For you, it, it is doing that. Because you think of things like I used to live when I lived in Toronto in grad school. We lived on Bathurst Street, and the streetcar would go by. Yeah, it would, yeah, okay, that's not bad, actually. But every 90 seconds, a streetcar would go by, starting at 5 o'clock in the morning. It never woke me up. And our bedroom was, like, facing the street. Right? Now, it probably woke me up once, and then after that, you know, we get up around 8. It's graduate school, so I just drink coffee and smoke half pack of cigarettes and go to school. Because <laughs> graduate school is great for you just learn to drink too much, drink too much coffee, or you smoke cigarettes, or you just go for the trifecta. I don't smoke it. <laughs> and I don't drink too much coffee anymore either. I drink like three cups of coffee a day. My liquor bills are unreal. <laughs> <laughs> You're making me real excited for graduate school. <laughs> it's, it's, it's got its, it's intense, that's all I'm saying. Now, why does this happen? Well, the classic idea here is Sherrington. Sherrington, uh, gee, Sherrington is the guy with the, you know, spinal dogs. This is a long time. Whoops, what happened there? So Sherrington was, he says a stimulus response, a very straightforward idea here is that the connection, the literal connection between a stimulus and a response in the nervous system is the actual connection to this thing was the response. So that's, it's, a, it's a very literal thing, and it's, it seems a little bit much. And that most everyone else. Now, Sokolov's model, Sokolov, uh, as you can probably guess from that name, um, that didn't care for the rat plague. <laughs> it played for the Central Red Army in the 70s, along with Alexander Yakushev. No, he was, in, he was Russian. So Sokolov is a... a just after Pavlov. And what Sokolov 
thought of was the, was the idea of a comparator. So what the animal is doing, and not consciously of course, is comparing its behavior with what it expects. So its behavior and the stimulus. So it's a representational model. People don't really get the idea that the Russians, so people like Pavlov, like Sokol, were really representational, a lot more sort of animal cognition-y than people give them credit for. So it's comparing a, a representation of what the world is to what it just experienced, and then adjusting the model that the animal has in its head accordingly. Now, Wagner's model, or the SOP model, which is uh, sometimes opponent processes. That's what that stands for. <laughs> Which is clever. And what does that mean? Uh, it means that... I'm going to draw something in. So... And th these are both more... These are all very general ideas about conditioning. In general, we can then apply them to recognition, to it, to habituation, sorry, in this case. So... Wagner, and that's Wagner from the School of Wagner, says that when you get a stimulus, you get the first thing you get, so time's moving across this way, okay? So a stimulus happens, and we're going to have, we have A1, I think it's A1 and A2, yeah, it is. A1 is excitation. And it's excitatory conditioning to the stimulus. Okay? A2 is inhibition, inhibitory conditioning of the stimulus. And think about this. If I'm going stimulus food, if the, sorry, if my stimulus is food, let's say. Uh, no, yeah, let's go light and food, okay? Excitation, and then, oh, now enough time has passed between the signal for food, meaning now there's no food. So these two opponent processes, excitation, right? And inhibition. Okay? What happens in Wagner's model is that the animal basically, the excitation never happens because nothing biologically relevant happens, and the inhibition kind of pushes the excitation out of the way slowly, and then, then we get habituation. Can you explain that one more time, please? I can try. So there's excitation and inhibition. Yes. Excitation here is an oriented response to a lot of stimulus. Right. In addition, is there's no response. Because mm -hmm. the stimulus is gone. Right? So, bang! I look over. Where's the bang going? Bang's gone. I look away. In addition. Bang! I look over. Bang! A little slower. Because what's happening here is the, animal's rep the representation the animal's getting is. Stimulus leads a lot more to A2 than it does to A1. It leads to X inhibition with the excitation. See what I'm saying? Make sense? Yeah. Okay. I kind of like Sokolov's, but it doesn't mean anything. They, they can all be right, by the way. They, they, you probably saw they're all pretty similar. They're pretty similar. Okay. Now, habituation's boring. So let's leave it. <laughs> I mean,
mean, it's really important in the sort of bio, people looking for the, the very biological basis of learning. Habituation is really important. Genetic basis. I just it bores the shit out of me. So let's get a little bit more interested in let's perceptual learning is cool too. Um, part of the reason it's cool is that like habituation, you get presented with a stimulus. There's no consequence whatsoever. But in this case. With habituation, there is like a loud noise or something. There's no, there's no even any behavior. So how are we going to measure it? What the animal's learning about here is about the characteristics of a stimulus and their relationship to each other. Like Gibson and Walk is the classic. This is... Uh, uh, rats being presented with uh, circles and triangles. And by saying being presented with, they're just giving them in their own cage. Here's some circles, here's some triangles. Enjoy, rats. And then later, when rats are tested on their ability to learn things about, uh, to associate things like, say, circles with food or triangles with food rather than squares and Dodecahedrons. Um, well, they, can they distinguish that? Oh, they already could. Yeah, sure. And they learn they learn about these the triangles and the, the, the circles more quickly than the squares. Neat, right? Very cool. Because the, the rats have actually learned. They've just been presented with it. There's, there's nothing. Nothing else has happened here. And this can get this work can get very complicated. Um, Sarah mentions Hall and Honey in that book. Uh, exceedingly complicated term. That we were supposed to, me and my friend Rob were supposed to read. We took a class with Sarah, and there were three of us in the class. Two of us didn't read it, but we were students. <laughs> and Rob looks over, and he's like, she Sarah's like, what do you think of them? Paper? He said, uh, so he starts doing the classic, you guys know how to do these things when you haven't read something, you just... Well, uh, what's the sure about the number of subjects? Like, you say bullshit. That <laughs> <laughs> and, like, I'm sitting there, like, and the reason we didn't read it, by the way, we were supposed to read it, he and I, and I, he came over to our place, me and Isabel, Isabel's just down the hall, just back when she was my girlfriend, not my wife, like 28 years ago. So Rob comes over, we're going to read this thing. We picked up a case of beer on the way home. We drank the beer, and we uh, had a fondue. And, um, <laughs> and watched Kids in the Hall, and that was it. So uh, a lot of your stories involve a lot of a lot of alcohol, and uh, and and then um, so then Rob uh, he's trying to say things that are generally things about all experiments. <laughs> and I I looked over and I said to we didn't read it, and he goes what are you doing? And he's whispering and like she's right there. There's four people around the table, including the instructor. I said we we didn't read. And she just packed up and left. <laughs> a three-hour seminar with our PhD advisor. Yeah, that didn't, uh, didn't go well. Um, funny thing is, I told her that story like five years ago, and she's like, that never happened. You guys were perfect. It's like, oh, man, you've completely forgotten what really, really, really sometimes lazy jerks you were. So, so Hall and Honey's even worse. Don't worry about it. Um, so... Are they learning to associate individual features of 
they being rats, not me and Rob who don't, didn't drink. Could they be learning to associate individual features of stimuli with each other? It could be. It's hard to really know. That's what that Holland Honey experiment's about. And I'm not going to uh, bore you with it. I actually have read it since. It still is a very complicated experiment. It's. I can give you a copy if you want to read it. Uh, it's, it's complicated stuff. Again, we don't know. It's hard to know because there's no behavior often involved here. Just make a lot of interesting guesses. Then you, you, you infer how, what they're learning by seeing later if they learn better about the stimuli uh, associated with something else. Now, William James thought that was the case. And, you know, we got a lot of stuff right. Got a lot of stuff wrong, too. But it's kind of neat that James was talking about these things that people were talking about, that's what, 70 years later, that people are still talking about 80 years after, or 70 years later again. Okay. So that's, again, still, perceptual learning is still pretty important. Imprinting is less boring. In fact, imprinting is cool. You know about imprinting, right? Filial imprinting, the idea of learning what your, who your mom is. This is the idea if you're a goose or a chicken. Duck, you know, birds. That when you hatch, the first thing you see moving, you imprint on it. Right? Conrad Lorenz wins the Nobel Prize for this. Pretty cool. Now, Lorenz had a different. He said it wasn't learning. What he meant was it wasn't the same as classical or opera conditioning. Now, Lorenz was in the European tradition, more of an animal behavior, ethology tradition. Right? And he's, here are his points. He said, first of all, it's got a critical period. Uh, a goose that, is, that hatches and sees my rubber boots first, thinks of my rubber boots as its family, and walks around following my rubber boots. Which is true, by the way. I mean, they, not, not the part about it, actually. But yeah, that's true. It's irreversible. So critical period, early on, and then it doesn't matter because it sees other things moving and still follows his boots. Irreversible. That's what he thought. <laughs> That's what he thought. And it looked like that. It affects behavior well into the future. That's different than other kinds of learning. And it generalizes to all members of the species. Now I can remember, I recognize who my species are. So the duck now think, hangs it's a boot. <laughs> yeah. In I mean, again, using shorthand, right? We all know the duck isn't actually thinking. The duck's not sitting there thinking, I hope he puts me on his feet today. The duck wouldn't be thinking about how I hope he puts me on because it's thinking it's uh, the boot is the living thing. Yeah, maybe. But then it finds out the boot is a lie. portal reference for you there. So, the problem is he was pretty much wrong about all these things. About how, how, first of all, we're going to find it shortly. It's not critical period, it's a sensitive period. So it's not only in these days and nothing else. Is it irreversible? No. You actually can reverse it. You can imprint an animal on something else. Imprinting only is in, is in birds and gerbils. Not gerbils. Um, the big ones, guinea pigs. Yeah, which are not mine. 
But that's it. Nothing else. Not our humans. Nothing else. Does it affect behavior well into the future? Yeah. So do lots of things. Right? So lots of kinds of learning do that. Well, not well. I mean, to a point, yeah, that's true. But it's also the case that changing the whole life of an animal, basically, um, it generalizes to all members of a species. The generalization isn't special. But again, Lorenz didn't really have the training in the sort of like his training was different. So I'm not really criticizing Lorenz. I'm sort of showing you that it used to be that the ethologists typically mostly. European, mostly sort of continental European, some Brits too, and the learning people over in North America, so Canada and the States, had really different ideas and didn't even know what words meant. And that went both ways. That went both ways. So this is Lorenz saying that, and we're sitting there going, ha ha ha, Lorenz, well, we could say that about the people in, in, in North America who completely misunderstood uh, things about basic zoology. Basic right? The world's changed a great deal since then. Anyway. Pat Bateson, um, who was at Cambridge, uh, whose daughter, uh, Melissa Bateson, is at Oxford, which has come great. And she's also an animal behavior. Um, anyway, Pat Bateson did uh, <laughs> this really neat experiment. So when you get, he found that you could easily, you can imprint, what well, he knew, that you can imprint chickens, or you know, chickens, yeah, little, or the ducklings, can't remember, it doesn't matter. It's gonna bother me though. I think, it, I think they're little chickens. And, and, and on, on, on lights, flashing lights work better than, 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 than a solid light. So we use these flashing lights. So a flashing red light, half the birds get a flashing red light, half of them get a flashing yellow light. And they imprint on this. Okay. And the way he gets to detect do they like the red or the yellow? is he puts them in a running wheel, just like for a hamster, that kind of thing. And one side's got yellow light, one side's got a red light. It's a very simple procedure. Now all we have to do is count how many revolutions there are towards one or the other. Simple, right? It's, it's a very clever way to, to test this, rather than just Conrad Lorenz having people, having people, having geese follow his, his boots around. Much, much easier. So first of all, that's pretty clever. Ducklings. Were they ducklings that makes this experiment? Okay. Well, yeah, he. Um, he found that simple exposure, just exposure, they didn't even have to behave at all, was enough for them to. Now, sometimes it's just certain features. If, if you use a whole bird, uh, and oftentimes you don't use the bird itself, you use a stuffed version of the bird, and then you have like making mummy sounds, so to speak. But what you can do then is you can take the parts of the animal and put them in funny places. Like you can put the head over here. What's, up here. what's that teach? It is a way to determine is it the parts of the animal or the way it's configured. 
And it turns out it's the individual pieces of the Burmese Red Jungle Thumb, which the young are imprinted on. It's actually not the, the, the people call the configural stimulus, the whole stimulus. It's just some parts of it. So that's why you do that. One of, one of the neat things Bateson did is people said, oh, well, all that's happening is the animal has learned, with, with running in the running wheel, the animal has learned that it's getting, it gets reinforcement. Um, just from seeing that object. Well, what if uh, I had it where it, when it ran towards that light, it actually, <laughs> the light physically moved further away. So is it just seeing the light that matters? I can clutch that, I'm gonna see it, it feels good, I will run in the thing. And yeah, they'll actually go further away As long as they're seeing it. So what it is, it's not the closest to it, it's actually being exposed to the stimulus itself. Pretty cool. And the longer the exposure, original exposure, the better the imprinting, which shouldn't surprise you. Now I can also say we know it's irreversible, it's not irreversible because if an animal is imprinted on light, guess what? Now show it a, a duck, it changes pretty quickly to ducks. If it never sees another, like a, an adult duck, it never is going to imprint on an adult duck. But if it, if it sees an adult duck, it's like, oh, that's what I look at. Okay, I thought it was the light. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Much would rather, so, so mom is, that's mom. Not Dr. Bateson's weird contraption where I run away from something as I want to get near it. Okay, because I thought the universe's lot was cruel. Yes, it sort of is, but not completely. There's something special going on here. Um, it does show blocking, overshadowing, things you see in regular. We talked about blocking today. You can see this. And in fact, you could think of the critical period, because eventually, not seeing an adult duckling, eventually at some point it's going to be like, well, now it's just... Red lights are nothing. Right? You can see enough red lights. That's just blocking. Right? That's all that is. On the other hand, you can't go from ducks to red lights. So if you see a duck, it can't go, oh, red lights. Well, they look a lot also interesting like mothers. It doesn't work that, <laughs> that way. You have a sensory period or a sensitive period. So when they get old enough, they don't imprint anymore. There's also something called competitive exclusion, which means it's kind of like blocking, except that part of it kind of is irreversible. At some point, it's like, no, I can't imprint at all. I've seen so many red lights, that's all I care about. 
Like I said, it's reversible, but it totally depends on the, but not, but sort of not totally, it depends on the stimulus. So a red light to a yellow light, you can reverse it. A duckling to a red light doesn't work, sorry, a duck to a red light doesn't work. A red light to a duck does work. So there is some kind of preparedness there. Uh, sexual imprinting, which we used to call kind of imprinting and we kind of don't anymore, uh, which is where you learn what your species looks like, so that's what you mate with. Because again, Lorenz found originally that there was this thing called filial imprinting, when it thought Conrad Lorenz's boots were long, and then they tried to mate with his boots. So with sexual imprinting, you can get kind of combining in features. So you can actually sexually imprint when they're uh, juveniles. You can sexually imprint uh, uh, a a duck on a goose with a chicken head and I don't know monster arms or something. Like you use all kinds of different things. You get sort of it's just, it's more just standard learning. I'm pretty sure that's how you get a cockatrice. Yeah, there you go, or a, or a, or a liger. So sexual imprinting probably isn't imprinting. It's just, it's learning. It's just, it's very simple. It's not nothing special. I, I, think, I think filial imprinting is special. I don't think sexual imprinting is special. And most people I don't think that think it is anymore either. It's not an uninteresting phenomenon. It's just, you know. I tell you guys a story about the, um, the goose that had imprinted on a horse or something at some farm. There's a farm in town, outside of town, that takes in animals, like stray animals kind of thing. And, uh, guy from the CT, some CTV called, and he said, I'd like you to comment on something, but I, I want to get your reaction on camera. I said, okay, I guess. Because he talked to me before about animal stuff. So he comes and he, he's talking to me, and he says, so this happened, this goose thinks this horse is its mother. And it follows it around. And I said, oh, yeah, that's called imprinting. He thought it would really stump me, and I knew what it was, right? <laughs> so he, say, he says, really, I never, I said, yeah, 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 Conrad Lorenz won the whole prize for it, blah, blah, blah. So that's the end of the interview, and he says, well, do you think the goose is happy? I said, no, I don't know. If the goose is happy and the horse is happy, I think we should all be happy. <laughs> so that's, 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 so then they, they show it on the news, and they show the, they show the footage of the goose and the horse. And then they, they say, we talk, I talked to animal behavior and learning expert, Dr. David Broadback from Agomi University. Here's his comment. And that was just me saying, if the goose is happy, of course <laughs> So that's fine. It's a little embarrassing. <laughs> then it's one of these human, it's a slow news time. And it's one of these human interest stories. It gets picked up by like, CTV National News. <laughs> and it's on one of those headline news channels. Every 15 minutes for 24 hours, it's me saying, I, I can get emails from friends all over the country making fun of me. It's like, no, they didn't use the whole thing. I talked about an increase in um, and the, and the A receptors and the IMHV. Yeah, sure you did. <laughs> so I never talked to the media again. Uh, the TV anyway. Bizarre. It's like, don't use that. When I see, they could have said, it's called imprinting. Here's Dave to explain imprinting. No. Here, let's make a fool out of the academic. <laughs> so, so I felt pretty stupid. I mean, more than usual. 
Okay, altruism's weird. This is also recognition. Um, so if genes are selfish, Richard Dawkins' famous book, The Selfish Gene, um, how am I supposed to be, why would I be nice to anybody? And I mean I as I could be a rat, I could be a person, I could be a vampire bat. So we have kin selection. This is the idea that you're nicer, you're more bound to give up resources, etc., to someone who is related to you than someone who is not related to you. And the more related they are, the better you are to them. Right? So this is the idea that I wouldn't give my life for one of my children, but two, I would. That's 0.5 and 0.5 is one. So two of them equals one of me. By the way, kids, I that's, if you're listening, that's not true. I would do anything for you. But give my life. Come on, don't, don't get carried away. Now, or eight cousins. <laughs> and in fact, there's, there's some behavior in the well that's like this. So I have to now recognize who my cousins are, who my nieces and nephews are, who, who people who I don't really know very well might carry some of the same alleles that I have. I have to somehow recognize them. We were given it in that same course, the one I was telling you about Sarah, that was a neat course. We were taught a third of the year about ethology, like animal behavior, a third of the year about really hardcore animal cognition stuff, and a third of the year about sort of evolutionary biology. And the evolutionary biology, the, 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 the exam, it had one question, and it was, your house is on fire, you have two children, your uh, mate, in-laws, and listed all these things, and said, what order do you save them in? <laughs> awesome. The last thing you save is your dog, because it's not even the same species. First thing you save is your kids, and you save them in reverse order of how old they are, so the oldest first, because you put the most investment in. <laughs> the very last is, is your mate, because you can get another one of those, and they're related. <laughs> and then, then the dog. With in-laws in the house? What's that? With in-laws in the house? <laughs> uh, right, that's true. The in-laws were after the mate. Yeah. That's true. Okay. And, you always and your parents are after your kids because your parents are 0.5 with you, but your parents will be dead soon. <laughs> your kids could reproduce them. This is a lot of fun. So that's one way to do it. The other way to do it would be kid. So it's kid selection. So I have to now recognize my, my kid. That's recognition like or reciprocal altruism. This is Robert Trimmer's idea. So I scratch you back, you back, you're back, you scratch mine. Uh, I have to recognize you, and you have to recognize me. So if I'm nice to you today, tomorrow you have to be nice to me, and vice versa. I was looking at you like, like you, 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 like rhetorically, all of you, basically everybody, give me a dollar. So either way, we have to learn to recognize either kin or non-kin that we've been nice to or not been nice to. Because if you're not nice to me, I'm not nice to you next time. So the nicest example of the effect of genetic relationships, and then we can, because it's like, look at kin selection, is eusocial insects. Okay? 
So you social insects, what's you sociality? We have overlapping generations. We have cooperative care of the young. We have sterile castes. Okay? So insects and insects, this especially occurs in the, uh, I think it's a super family, Hymenoptera. That's ants, bees, and wasps. So they live in a big communal or small, depending on the size of the animal. Nest of some sort of like hive or nest. Also happens in Isoptera. That's uh, termites, right? Yeah. And Homoptera, those are aphids. What's an aphid? Uh, they're little tiny things, usually, they're often green, little tiny bugs, they live on leaves. Vermibugs? Uh, pest. Which ones? Vermibugs? Is that what they're called? They're, they're really small, usually. Really small. Like. They have like a beetle like look to them? Yeah, ish. They look like insects. <laughs> There also are some um, shrimp that are eusocial. And there is one species of rat that is eusocial. But mostly, we're talking about insects here. So you'll hear people say that termites and aphids aren't really eusocial. Um, because termites, for example, is not just a queen termite, there's also a king termite. Uh, so it gets all the matings, and then the queen is basically a giant reproduction factory. <laughs> no, the queen, you don't, don't even Google what a queen termite looks like. It's disgusting. <laughs> uh, you don't want to know. Um, but if you look at the definition, where you have overlapping casts, oh, sorry, overlapping, ge overlapping generations, cooperative care, and zero casts, yeah, I think they work. Anyway, so the, the thing about Hymenoptera is their haplodiploid. And it, the eusociality itself has evolved 11 separate times in, haplo, in, in, in Hymenoptera species. So it tells you something. It's got something, the genetics, the haplodiploid nature, nature of their genetics. In other words, that females are haploid, uh, sorry, diploid. They have pairs of chromosomes, just like we all do. The males are haploid, they only have single chromosomes. And we have sterile females then, and I'll show you why in a second, that are very closely related. So it actually makes less sense to have young than it does to cooperatively take care of someone else's young. Weird. Because they're all your sisters. You're more related to your sisters than you would be to your own offspring. doesn't pay to have young, it pays to take care of your sisters as they're more closely related to you than your potential offspring. So we used to always think that female, quote, drone uh, ants and wasps and bees were actually sterile. They, they aren't. They, if you take their, they can produce eggs and they can have young. 
but they are, would be less closely related to their own young than they would be to their sisters. So here's how it works. So haplodiploidy works like this. A female is related to her father by 0.5. See, they're, they're, they're diploid, just like us. To their mother by 0.5, to their son by 0.5, and their daughter by 0.5. It sounds like us. That all makes sense. A male is related to its father by zero because males don't have fathers. Males are made through parthenogenesis by females. Males have no relationship to their fathers because they don't have one. To their mothers by one. They share half their mother's genes. Their mother shares half her genes with them, but to them, mom has all my genes... To their son, they can't have sons. Remember, males are made parthenogenically, so they don't, it doesn't, that really should just be almost nothing serial. It should just be a, a dash. <laughs> and to their daughters by 1.0. Their daughters are only related to their fathers by 0.5, but, the, but my daddy's little girl has all dad, daddy's genes. So now a female is related to her brother by 0.25. And to her sister by 0.75 on average. A male is 0.5 to his brother, 0.5 to his sister. This is weird. But it's just because of the haplodiploid nature of hymenoptery. Of, of okay. But it's admittedly, no one's denying it, it's, it's weird. So here, this maybe explains it a little more carefully. So males are just clones of half of their mom. So sisters are either 75% related to each other, 100% related to each other, or 50% related to each other in the ratio a third, a third, a third. So on average, they're related to each other by 0.75. Okay? So how do you... Now, behaviorally, then, what, what, what this manifests itself in a colony that... Works together, it works together because genetically it makes sense to work together. And the thing is, they can recognize kin, so they can recognize bees, for example, from their own hive compared to bees from other hives. And people have done really, the thing is, because they're bees, it's pretty easy to do. You mess around with sort of crossbreeding. You can make different amounts of relatedness. And if you take bees from another hive, and maybe they're related to the, on average, the sisters 0.5, and then 0.25, and 0.05, whatever, and you correlate that with the likelihood of them being allowed into the hive, there's a beautiful straight freaking line. So they're somehow recognizing them. They're either learning this over time by being around their sisters and learning some characteristics, or there's some, something built in. Hard to know what it is. 
So how were the kin recognized directly? Probably not. It's probably not like there's Trivers talked about the green beard phenomenon. The idea of a gene that creates green beards and also creates a green beard recognition system. So I can recognize you and because I have a green beard, you have a green beard because we, I know we both share that gene. No one has a green beard. It's, a, it's an analogy. So it's probably not directly. It's probably indirectly. It's probably by being around your sisters if you're talking about bees, ants, wasps. Uh, there have cross-fostering experiments have been done where you get individuals from one species. So you say take a zebra finch, or as they would say in the UK, a zebra finch, because they say it wrong. Um, we should say zebra. We say zebra. We should say zebra. Anyway, with uh, some sparrow, like ground sparrows. And you cross foster them. So zebra finch, I'm going to start saying zebra now. Zebra finch is getting taken care of by white cross sparrow. Um, do they recognize their own species? Do they recognize their, quote, brothers and sisters they grew up with in the nest, things like that? And they do recognize them, but it's also the case that you have that they're still, they still recognize their own species even though they're nicer, basically, to uh, members of their own species they are to random white crowned sparrows, that kind of thing. But they're nicest to the white crowned sparrows they grew up with, which aren't even their own species. So there's some interaction of, of biology and learning in there, which really shouldn't surprise anybody. A building's ground squirrels are a great example here. They, they treat the familiar as kin. They treat individuals they know as kin. They aren't necessarily their kin, but the chances are if you are living in the same area that you're related to each other. So they just treat ones that they recognize as that they're nicer to them than ones they don't recognize. And you can do that easily just by doing some cross-fostering experiments again. And then you can measure how actually how the later barriers take some blood. And they're probably cousins. They, yeah, if, if you actually grow up in the same area, yeah, you almost certainly are cousins. Yeah. So, but it's not the whole story, though, because, for example, there is what's called phenotype matching. So you can take a look and see that like are with like. We know even in humans that we are more likely to be friends with people that have the same blood type that we have than one would expect by chance. How are we doing this? Want to hang out? Sure. What's your blood type? That's not something you say, right? But, and there's all kinds of other variables that we are more similar to when we are friends with each other than this, this that's humans, but this also happens in other animals where this, this sort of phenotype matching happens where just very strange things you think would, would even be noticed, but they are noticed. How are we doing this? Us being humans, us being mice. Well, one way is we can learn about uh, your immune system. And the way you learn about each other's immune systems is you smell each other. Okay? 
And the thing you can smell usually is uh, armpits or urine. Now, most humans don't know how to smell each other's urine because it's a little weird. Whatever you're into. But uh, people do notice each other's you know, body odor. And if you took evolutionary psychopathy last year, you know about the idea of these experiments where you take clean t-shirts and you have people work out in them and then you bag up the t-shirt and you have people rate the smell of each t-shirt. Now, they aren't, they smell like sweat, they don't smell like gross, you know how like eventually sweat smells bad? So it's like almost right away, it's not like, uh, it's very quickly. It's like musky? Yeah, it's not, you know, all oxidized basically what happens. So they're sealed up in a bag. And then you ask people to rate how pleasant they find that smell and you are more likely to rate t-shirts that are more uh, smell pleasant. Uh, there's a couple things. First of all, people generally who people consider to be good looking have nicer smelling sweat. Wild. But also, um, within that, you can detect kin. So people that have more similar immune system genes than you have. And we don't know that we're doing this, by the way. As, as you know, you're not doing this on you know, walking around. Can I buy you a drink? Also smell your armpits, because I want to just make sure. I'm just uh, sorry if that wasn't taboo. Yeah. Yeah, don't do that. I mean, I was never very successful with women generally. I married my first girlfriend because <laughs> I couldn't find any better in the world ever. I see. No, it's true. I see. I have literally no conception of how to even. I'm frightened of women right now. I'm a grown man. Uh, but where did I go with that? Doesn't really matter. I'm scared of women. Um, the point is, somehow we can do this, somehow rats can do this, and mice can do it. And it, we know we can do it through smelling basically pheromones that are related to IMHC. Or MHC, rather. IMHC, what's that? Um, there is reciprocal altruism in humans almost certainly. In humans almost certainly. Humans are such a weird case because we're so closely related to all of us. Like, compared to every other mammal, we're ridiculously inbred. No, we really are. Like, 99 point ridiculous. It's, it's, let's put it this way, there's only one animal that's more inbred than us, and it's the jaguar. Um, we go back to about, maybe 100,000 years ago, it's like two, between 200 and 2,000 people left. We're all descendants of all of them. At the very most, we're each other's 26th cousin. At the very most. Like, we're so related, it's ridiculous. This is why I always get sort of, not that I find uh, racism funny, but I get kind of, when they think we're being sciencey, the racists. Well, as you can see here, blah, blah, blah. It's like, you really don't know anything. <laughs> we're so related, right? And sadly, I share a lot of genes with you, and I think you're immoral. <laughs> but, uh, so, I mean, I kind of feel that way. That it's, if they actually would take a class, just, just show them some genetics that they don't know. 
they would say that it's I, it was all it's all fake news. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we do reciprocal altruism, but there's something weird and special about our genetics. We're so close to the lake. Other animals do too. Other I think chimps do pretty clearly. So not too closely related. Vampire bats do. So not everybody gets a blood meal every night, vampire bats. So then I have to go, I go up to another bat, who I'm not related to, and I, I kind of nuzzle up to it, I groom it its mouth a little bit, and it throws up a little blood in my mouth. Because it's a vampire bat, and that's what they do. The neat thing is the next day, if I've got a blood meal, I'm more likely to feed the one who came back, who I got blood from the other day. Okay, so there's something special going on there. There's definitely something special going on there. Is that due to being killed? No, that's the interesting thing. Is they don't tend to, the, the, well, they are roosting communally uh, in caves because they're bats, they're in bat caves, duh. Uh, it's also the case that they're pretty, they're not even, there's nothing, they're nothing like, say, really like we are. And they seem to go to be just as likely to share blood meals with kin as with non-kin. Yeah. So there is, yeah, that's reciprocal altruism. They really are doing that. It's only going to work in a social species that can recognize individuals. That can, in other words, learn about individuals. Right? So what's the chance that any two bats in a community are related? Greater than zero. I mean, but the neat thing is, you're no more likely to give a blood meal. Like, you do it also to non-kin. Yeah. Uh, that are so distantly related that the, 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 the genetic relationship doesn't matter. Yeah. So they would do it to someone not from their community. I don't know if that's the question. But I would guess yes. So could it really just be preservation of the colony? Is that yeah, but that's then you're getting into group selection, right? So you're getting into the idea that you're doing things for the good of the group, and then all you have to just one one damn guy who, does, who breaks that rule and doesn't live in a socialist paradise wins that genetic game every single time. <laughs> the, sel the selfish will always win in evolution. That's how it works, right? So it's hard to think of a colony as being a living thing. Unlike, say, you could think probably of a, of a, of a, a, bee's, a beehive as being a, 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 as a, a unit of selection, maybe. Maybe. Or isolated populations of rabbits in Australia. It's a special case. Some weird shit happened there in the 50s. It's Australia. It's Australia. The whole continent is trying to kill you. Um, recognition learning has some characteristics that other forms of learning do. So I don't think this is anything special, but it's something we have to pay attention to. Um, also, that's not true. <laughs> so it's also the case that there are special things here. And there are special things, say, related to genetics and that that maybe we haven't, we don't talk about in, no, oh, I don't know, uh, operating conditions. Questions? All right. Uh, don't forget to listen to the Twitch's episode where we talked, Matt Murphy and I talked about some stuff on this one. And um, see you next
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dave, uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh- uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcasts, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>